0: Evening, Richie.
1: Good morning, Sen.
0: What are we talking about today?
1: Today, we're talking about the influence or lack of influence of HP Lovecraft (laughs) on Bloodborne. Because it's a topic that has been talked about a lot. But we haven't had any real, I think like deep dives into it. It's just sort of been mentioned and there's been like, uh, this monster here or this thing is like, Taken from this story, but I don't think we've really gone into depth about any of it. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight.
0: Can I start this podcast by putting my favorite Lovecraft quote on the
2: screen?
1: Yes, and I suspect that that quote includes the line (laughs) A spontaneous ejaculation of wonderment.
0: You know me too well.
1: Do you want to start with Call of Kahulu or do you want to leave that till the end so there's like a carrot?
0: <laughs> well, I'll be honest, I was listening to it on the bus. And you know how it's hard enough to sort of keep track of an audiobook cuz like listening is different from reading yeah. when it requires concentration yeah. for certain things. And also you're on the bus and on your way to work and you kind of doze off and on and it's like it wasn't a very attentive listening of those books
1: i think lovecraft reads better than like like if you just read it it sort of works better than if you listen to it because he has this he has a very very awkward way of writing
0: yeah i i think so and at times it's like hard to keep track of what's actually going on
1: yeah um this is a thing where like people will criticize Lovecraft for the way he because he writes in a way that is very it's it's quite clunky and he will often just have sentences that are just loads and loads of adjectives. Yeah. Um like everything gets described with like five or six different ways.
3: <laughs>
1: but like I don't think that makes it bad writing. I think that that helps with the the headspace he is trying to get you in, which is that you are supposed to be sort of like this weird, confused, almost fever dream relationship with what's going on. So the idea that you might have to like stop a sentence halfway through, go back, reread the start, I think helps with that.
0: No, I agree. Definitely yeah. puts you in a certain headspace and there's like a certain style to it that is undeniably
2: his
1: Yeah. Because a lot of his work is about the failure to understand something. So the fact that his prose itself is hard to understand helps with that. Mm-hmm. And something that you kept saying to me as you were reading it is like, he's using a lot of, of very archaic words. Yeah. Yeah. That you, you were having to look up uh, some of the words yeah. he was using. Like his, he, he deliberately uses quite a, like an older vocabulary in the way in sort of, odd words like squamous and cyclopean and things. hmm Yeah. So, uh, the, the four stories I said we should look at with reference to Bloodborne were Call of Cthulhu, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, Shadow over
3: Innsmouth, and At the Mountains of Madness. hmm So, which one do you want to start with? Uh...
0: Shadow over that thing.
3: Shadow over the thing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Because the thing isn't a real word, is it?
1: Innsmith. Yeah. Innsmith is a town. Well, it's 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 the fictional name of a fictional town.
0: Yeah, but is the word itself in the English language before Lovecraft um, used it?
1: No, but like I can imagine, like it's a plausible name for a town. It's like Hemwick. Like I okay. can imagine there's a place called Hemwick. Yeah.
0: Okay, because I was Googling some town names that he mentioned and I couldn't find them. And yeah. I was like, mm. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, his
1: stories are, uh, they tend to be, at least this one is set around like New England. It's like Stephen King.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay.
1: So, the story of Shadow of Innsmouth it's about a man who hears about a strange town called Innsmouth, which is a fishing town and it's described in a way that is, like, it is a very isolated town. It doesn't have much contact with the outside world, and it doesn't seem to have any sort of, like, functional local economy. It just fishes. And occasionally people from Innsmouth will come and they will trade with people from other towns. Um, And it's very, very insular and... The more he starts, he starts investigating Innsmouth and he finds out that, like, uh, some point in the past, Insmith used to be a very prosperous fishing town. Then the fish sort of stopped coming, and then a strange kind of, uh, almost like a cult leader esque figure showed up and said, "I can bring the fish back." And the more he looks into it, the more he realizes that the the way they bring the fish back is that they form a strange kind of pact with this slumbering sort of god in the sea called Dagon and Dagon is responsible for the
3: the um the the, the fish coming
1: back but also Dagon is uh, has his own sort of like attendant uh, species called the Deep Ones who are a sort of half human half fish thing this is where the fish people from Bloodborne come from and they come to the surface every so often and they mate with humans. And all the people in Innsmouth are part human, part deep one. And what happens is that they look like a human up until they reach sort of um, adulthood, like in their 30s. And then they begin to take on the appearance of these fish people. And once they finish transforming, they can go into the water and they can live underwater with Dagon.
3: And the,
1: at the end of it, the reveal is that the narrator, he realizes that he is part, uh, he, his, he has roots in Innsmouth and he's going to transform into one of these things. And he starts, he realizes that um, he had a, he had a cousin who attempted, he had, a, he had a, like an uncle who killed himself and then a cousin who has been confined to an asylum he realizes that the reason that happened is because they were starting to transform as well. And it ends with him realizing that I've got to go and like liberate my cousin from the asylum and we're going to go and live in the sea together. Um, Well, that's, but that's like, this is a thing that that we were talking about um, another time where that's present. That's the ending, but it's sort of presented as like, this is a horrifying thing to happen. It's not like a, like a happy thing. Is it talks about at the very beginning of the story that Innsmouth was like the reefs around Innsmouth were destroyed, they were torpedoed, and the houses were all dynamited in an attempt to sort of cleanse these things away. And uh, yeah,
3: so that's like I, I think it's fair to say
1: that they're not presented sympathetically. Um, and the ending is meant to be like he has gone mad, not like he has liberated himself. Mm. And the Shadow of Brinsmith, it's, it's influential on the, the fishing hamlet. The fishing hamlet just like straight up steals chunks of it, but also it's also influential on the city of Yharnam itself. How so? Because Yarnum is, is very much like Innsmouth in the sense it is this like isolated city. No one really knows very much about it. The people there are very, very insular. And they don't they just appear to sort of like trade with the outside world, but other than that they don't have any contact with them and they're very um they're very inward looking. And there's this uh a lot of sequences well okay, firstly, they talk about in Shadow of Rinsmith that the people of Insmith, because they're part fish monster, they have what's called the Innsmouth look, which is like you're if you're from Innsmouth or you have like Insmith ancestry you have like very um large eyes that are sort of separated and you have like white like um you basically you have like fish-like features you sort of look like a human goldfish <laughs> in this unsettling way and in Bloodborne uh this is confusing because it's in some of the promotional material but it's not in they never they never use this term in the game itself but the way that the people in Yharnam have like asymmetrical limbs and all these like on their faces—that's called the Yarnum look. Where is it called that? It's called that in—it's like the art book that I, the art book that you got with the collector's edition that I oh, have. Okay. Yeah, it straight up calls that the Yarnum look. So it's—it's it's similar in that, yeah. In insmith in you have like fishy features, whereas in Yarnum, it's more like a beast, sort of like our wolf-like features on you. And there, there's a, there's an extended sequence in Shadow Over Innsmith. Where the narrator is sneaking around Insmith, and there's like sort of uh, like groups of these Insmith people chasing them, and it's very much like at the beginning of Bloodborne when you're trying to avoid the animates.
2: Mm.
1: But there's like these patrolling groups of Insmith people trying to like
3: hunt them down, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, when you were talking about the story, the way you presented it, it made me think of a starting character, Yeah, uh, the lone survivor of a lost hamlet. Yeah. Kind of makes sense that it would be a reference to the story more than an actual reference to the fishing hamlet.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the fishing hamlet is, it's almost like a, okay, well, we'll get into the, we'll talk about the fishing hamlet and how that both is and isn't Shadow over Insmith because I think that's important to stress, because what happened with Bloodborne is because the Lovecraft stuff's very overt, there was this take on it that was, oh, it's just doing Lovecraft in the same way that, like, like you played Call of Cthulhu, didn't you, recently?
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a a tendency for people to sort of interpret it as, okay, it's just like an off-brand Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. But Shadow of Rinsmith and the Fishing Hamlet story are, I think, very, very different in a lot. Of, like, they're almost at odds with each other in a lot of ways. The thing about Bloodborne is that I don't think it's as Lovecraftian as a lot of people seem to think it is. <gasps> gasp. Yeah. To me, Bloodborne is more like a series of self contained, like, just kind of gothic horror stories that. the the cosmic horror Lovecraftian stuff sort of functions as a means of unifying. So if you take any one of those things away and you do it on its own, you wouldn't need to bring in any sort of cosmic horror or Elder God stuff. Like, the story of Kanehurst doesn't need the Great Ones if you just did it on its own. But the fact that you've got, like, Kanehurst and Hamwick and Bergenworth and the Fishing Hamlet and Yarnum and old Yharnam and all these things together. Um, those stories all individually, I think, don't need the Great Ones. But what happens is that by bringing the Great Ones into it, you have a way of, of sort of connecting all these things together by saying they're all connected to the Great Ones. So mm. the the story of the fishing Hamlet, even though the aesthetic of it is lifted from Shadow of Rinsmouth, what it made me think of more than anything is like a, a, like a colonialist horror story, like a mummy's curse story. Cause the story of the fishing hamlet in the game is that the hunters go to this, like from their perspective, like it's a primitive place. And in the, the heart of it, they find this, this sort of strange, um, this sort of like strange uh, thing that, something that they haven't seen before like some like a god this cause thing and then they they defile that and then the game basically happens because by doing that they have trespassed and this thing is coming for them like it's coming to get
3: them so cause itself
1: is a great one but you could tell that exact story by just like Like, if you remove cause from it, you could have it be, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Like, it's a story about a group of explorers. They go somewhere they shouldn't. They disturb something they shouldn't, and then the thing comes forth. It's the same with the mummy. Like, the the explorers go to, like, the tomb. They trespass on the tomb. They get cursed. The thing comes forth. And it's very overt in, in German. Because Gurman is haunted by this child, like the spirit of this child that
3: he was responsible for defiling the mother of. Mm -hmm. So
1: that to me is what the fishing hamlet is like actually doing. And the Lovecraftian stuff is more just the aesthetic of it. But then they end up using, like I was saying, they use the fact that. There are these elder gods and these cosmic gods to sort of unify, like, how the fishing Hamlet story connects to a story that is made up of stuff from Dracula movies, which connects to a story about werewolves.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go on.
1: I guess another thing in Shadow of Rinsmith that's going to come up repeatedly is that what is... Um, one of the reasons that the the character begins to sort of think something is off about Innsmouth is that the people of Innsmouth are trading with other people and they're trading this strange jewelry. And he makes a point of like, there's this jewelry, but the design of it is completely unlike anything I've ever seen. But he's saying like, it's this jewelry, it's very finely made, but it's not, it's on a classical style, but it's also not in a modernist style. I don't know what this is. And that's going to, repeatedly become a theme in Lovecraft which is that like I was talking about um, like the, the way that the sort of horror tropes in Bloodborne work. Like when when Gurman is haunted by the orphan and when Yharnam is cursed by Cods, they know exactly what's going on they know exactly what they've done. Like Gurman knows that a child, like he did something horrible to a child and now the child and the child's mother are coming for him. The people in Yarnum know that, like, they... well the people in it, the, the healing church. Like, they know that they... They know that they defiled somewhere sacred. Like, they understand everything. But a common thing in Lovecraft is the opposite of that. It is that, like, I literally don't understand what's happening. I don't
3: know what this is. This thing is incomprehensible to me.
1: And that's another way in which it differs, because a lot of the horror in Bloodborne like up to a point is extremely recognizable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Lovecraft makes a point of talking about like how he wanted to do away with with specters and ghosts in his stories in his horror stories. And the idea behind like a specter or a ghost is that it's it's recognizable as something. It's something that's returned. Whereas in in the fiction that like in uh, in Lovecraft's fiction it's not. It's it's hard to um, pin down exactly because, like, the things in Lovecraft are on a literal level—they're old things that have returned. But he always makes a point of like distancing them from humanity. It's always like it's something from the far, far, far distant past, which we'll get to in Mountains of Madness. But it's like this is something from the past, but it's it's not like it's not historical. It's not from your past. It's not even from humanity's past. It's from like it's this. Uh, he he's very into like it's pre-Cambrian. It's like like from you know, some point before the dinosaurs came into being. That's how old these things are, and they're so old they're divorced from anything in the world now. Which is sort of the opposite of a ghost, because a ghost is something that like is lingering around because there's like it has business with you.
3: So yeah, like you you have uh, Insmith.
1: Yeah, have the fish people, like as Lovecraft is doing, he's presenting the fish people as these like hideous monsters. Like the deep ones are like something that should not be. They're like they're like a perversion of humanity. And the narrator eventually like the 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 reefs where they lived are destroyed, the houses where the, the people lived are destroyed, and the narrator ends up going mad. And sort of returning to the ocean. It's like this horrific ending. But obviously in Bloodborne it's presented as like these things are actually like they're very, very sympathetic. Like, they, they are
3: victimized by, the, like, the, the humans come and destroy them. Um, the other thing is that,
1: like, and this is going to come up again, um, in, in these Lovecraftian stories, the idea is there's this, things that, like, defy all rationality and can't be understood. And when you encounter them, you go mad. Because you don't understand, you, you've just you've hit you've hit like a wall. Like it's like your brain just sort of blue screens. Like I don't understand what this is. And the idea is like, well, you have to get away from this thing, or it will destroy you. But in Bloodborne, you actually want to go toward it. You want to actually come into contact with these things because that's like a path to enlightenment. Which is another. It's very very different. And again, like the the fish people in um. In Bloodborne, they're not they're not like degenerated former humans. They're not presented as that. They're presented as like this is actually the next step in evolution. Like you actually want to become like this. So the reason that people go to the reason Bergenworth are going to the Hamlet in the first place is that they want to like study these people. They want to find out what what exactly about them makes them different from us. So we can try emulating that. So, in a lot of ways, it is inverting
3: what Lovecraft was doing. Yeah.
1: So, do you want to do Mountains of Madness now? Because I think that touches on what I was saying before. Okay. So, Mountains of Madness, there's not a direct, like, analog in Bloodborne, but it's it's kind of similar to the Chalice Dungeons, I guess. In that it's about a group of scientists who find this a strange sort of, I guess, like, unburied ruins, basically, in the Arctic. They've been buried
3: for, like,
1: millions of years. Yeah. Um, and they, as they explore these ruins, they realise that this was once the home to a highly advanced uh, species called, they just call them the Elder Things, that came from space and they created all life on it. And then the Elder Things, in order to help them build their civilization, they created this slave species called the Shogoths, which were basically giant amoeba. And then the Shogoths later rebelled against the old ones, the Elder The Shogoths then rebelled against the Elder Things and killed them. And it's then revealed that there is still a living Shogoth in the ruins. And they have to get out as quickly as possible while the Shogoth is chasing them. And then they uh, one of them as as they're escaping from the from the ruins, uh, one of them the survivors looks out of the plane window and he sees beyond he sees uh, beyond the mountains where the ruins were and he sees something there that sends him completely mad being able to find out what it is. And
3: he just sort of babbles about stuff. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So, your favorite Lovecraft line was spontaneous ejaculation of wonderment. (laughs) Mine is from this story, and it's Mm penguin-fringed
3: abyss. (laughs) Why
0: why is
1: that your favorite? I just like the idea that there's there's this hideous abyss, but it's just surrounded by penguins.
0: I actually remember that quote. That's how I pictured it. (laughs) <laughs> but they were really cute penguins. Well, no,
1: these, these penguins are like six feet tall. Like.
0: No, they're like penguins from Penguin Club.
1: Are they Pingu? Pingu? You know, Pingu is like a little claymation penguin. He goes, noot, noot.
3: Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: Oh. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, <laughs> so this obviously is reminiscent in some ways of what happens with Bergenworth. Where they find these old ruins under Yanam, and they discover that there's the Fumerians under there that are like a pre well, kinda of pre-human civilization. And that they were created by well, hmm, We don't know if they were created, but they were used as slaves by the great ones like the Shogoths are. And then, like the Shogoths, they rebel and they form their own
3: civilization. Uh and again, like
1: there are that's sort of the um, the superficial aspect of it, but there's a lot that is, again, like Shadow of Rinsmith, it's very different. So, like I was saying with Insmith, they repeatedly go on and on in Mountains of Madness about how, like, they're exploring these ruins, but these ruins are absolutely nothing to do with humanity. They're something that's completely distinct. So they say, like, repeatedly, where we are, this is, like, Prior to the existence of any intelligent life on Earth. This is like millions and possibly billions of years old. And they talk about it in terms of like dinosaurs and fossils. And um, at one point there's like there is there's life here, but there's nothing as recent as like even a dinosaur here. It's just ruins. Uh, and it's it's so like unfeasibly ancient. Whereas the chalice dungeons are like the basement of Yarna. Like they're much more like a gothic crypt than what Lovecraft is describing here. And that, again, fits in with the way Bloodborne is doing things, because the one of the big reveals in Bloodborne, which is sort of, like, kind of not communicated very directly, is that the Thumerians underneath Yharnam are the ancestors of the Yharnamites. So, like, there's a direct historical and, and genetic and familial linkage between the Yharnamites and the Thumerians. So, everything about the Fumerians is recognizable like they kind of they look human, they have very human like like they they just live in like a crypt, it looks like it's part of Yanam. They have like the same sort of things in there that you find in Kanehurst. They have the very pale skin that the Kanehurst people have. They use blood like the Kanehurst people do. They have a queen like Kanehurst does. It's all like there's a direct connection there, but in mountains of madness they're very, very clear like there's no connection. This is just like an unknowable thing that preclude, like predates all intelligent life, uh, predates humans, it predates dinosaurs, it predates anything. And what happens is that, like, they do at one point discover that the elder things did create humans, but it's not like God creating humans, like we create intelligent life. It's not even like like Prometheus or something where aliens create humans or see to well with human. Genes to see what happens they're basically just fucking around and they create all these strange things and one of the things they create is just like this sort of hairless ape that they would sometimes like use as food and they would sometimes just like they refer to it as like a buffoon they just create this thing along with everything else they don't think humans are special so human civilization rising and falling is it's like has nothing to do with with the Elder things. They were just sort of like... Like, humans are an accident, basically, in this universe. Which is different to Bloodborne, where, like, humans, like, are connected, like, directly to everything that's going on. Like, they are kind of the center of everything. Even though Bloodborne does have these cosmic gods in it, it does still center humans and human history in a way that Lovecraft
3: doesn't. Yeah. Um.
1: So, this is like we were talking about sort of criticisms of Lovecraft's writing. One of the criticisms of Lovecraft's writing that I find extremely facile is that um, he will very frequently say something like, I cannot possibly explain or describe the thing in front of me. People treat that as like, that's the literary equivalent of like a movie with a bad special effect in it, where in order to get around
3: showing it, they just show it in the dark. Oh yeah?
1: Yeah, like people when people act like when he is saying like I can't possibly describe the thing in front of me, it's because he doesn't want to have to describe it and he wants your imagination to do the work because he doesn't want to have to do it himself. But like if you read Mountains of Madness, and I mean all of these stories are like this, he will say, I cannot describe the thing. It is like nothing that has ever existed, and then he will provide an extremely detailed description of it. So this is why, like, if you Google Cthulhu or you Google Elder Thing, you will find, like, no matter who is drawing or sculpting or designing things, like, these representations, they all basically look the same. Because he does provide a very, very detailed breakdown of exactly, like, what these things look like, how big they are. He goes into detail about, like, how they breathe, how they talk, um, Hmm. what sort of food they eat, like, in this some. So he's not actually just trying to say, I don't want to have to describe this. He's making the point, and it's very, very explicit in Mountains of Madness, that I, the narrator, cannot explain this thing, even though I am a scientist. Mm-hmm. So, like, one of the lines, like, I've, t- I've been taking notes here, and it's like, he's, he's this is from the perspective of a scientist. He's not saying, I don't know what this thing looks like, but it's really scary. He's saying, like, I can't figure out if the thing in front of me is an animal or a vegetable. (laughs) Um, The fact this thing exists means we will have to completely revise biology. Like science cannot currently like accommodate this thing. We will have to rethink like all of the laws of nature. Um, Basically, it's like broken. It's just it's something that like you can look at it and you can touch it and you can describe it, but it's something that just doesn't make sense. It's, it's kind of, I guess like when people first found the platypus or something like that, it's just like this thing, what yeah. the fuck is this? And that's, <laughs> that's where the horror is coming from because it's like, I am a scientist. I understand the world. I am not beholden to superstition. I am very good at like, I can compartmentalize everything. Everything is rational. Everything makes sense. Then suddenly, fuck. I've hit something <laughs> that like, it, there is absolutely no way for me to, to comprehend this thing like everything's turned my world upside down.
0: Yeah, I didn't yeah. get the impression that he didn't want to describe something. Yeah,
1: it, in it, the it's things I read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly because he goes on so long about like yeah. they're exactly this tall, they have like this many legs, it has this many mouths. Um it like it breathes through this tube and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So and again like that, um that ties into to what we were talking about in Smith because in in Bloodborne they have a similar like reaction where it's like this turns science on its head. But mm-hmm. their response is to investigate further. Yeah. Which is very different to what happens at Mountains of Madness. Because Mountains of Madness, it opens, like it's all his stories, I think pretty much all of them, are written in the first person. So there's a narrator. And it starts with the narrator saying, like, we found these things, you must never dig them up. You must never go to this place. Like, everyone, they are going to, people are going to mount an expedition, so you have to tell them not to go there. Because the things, they're like the knowledge there and the things you'll find will completely destroy everything. Whereas Bergenworth are the complete opposite of that there we found these things we don't understand them let's just keep looking let's just keep digging and keep like experimenting and studying these things until we understand them and i i think a part of that comes from the way that the way bergenworth are presented as not just like what we would call hard scientists but also as kind of philosopher mystics because what willem hits on like When he doesn't understand how the Great Ones work, his response isn't to give up. His response is to sit around and contemplate and, like, try to sort of alter the way he's thinking. And he becomes obsessed with, like, meditation. And he becomes obsessed with, like, studying, like, just sort of trying... He's trying to think like a Great One.
0: Right.
1: Because he believes that, like, rather than... There's a line in Lovecraft that's basically, like, you will go mad from the Revelation. Uh, Willem Willem sees going mad from the Revelation as sort of a good thing like this this, this upends my conception of reality good now let's try to <laughs> yeah he's like my, my conception of reality has been completely inversed by my encounters with this stuff so rather than running away screaming I will actually try to change like myself so that I can better yes. understand this reality that I, I know I know the world is different, so I have to change and we all have to change. So it's a much less conservative like view that than what Lovecraft sort of has. Like there's this sort of he talks about like there's a um must become accustomed to like a hideously amplified world of lurking horror.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But to Willem it's like, okay, well we do have to do that. These things are out there, so rather than run away, we should attempt to actually engage with this and understand it better, even if that means throwing out everything we know already. The other thing that Mountains of Madness does is that it presents the... It does present the Elder things sympathetically. Because the scientist who is studying the Elder things, he realises that, like, no, these things are, are monstrosities, but also they're they're very intelligent and they're very scientific, and they built this huge civilization. But then, what destroys them is the
3: Shoggoths. It's like the, the thing is he's frightened of the Shoggoths because the
1: Shoggoths are sort of irrational. That like the elder things can be understood because they are like rational, scientific beings like him. Mm-hmm. But the Shogoths are complete. The Shogoths are like the real monsters in this. Because the idea is that you can't what the fuck is a Shogoth? It's just a blob. And the way he explains it is like the Shogoths were they were used as laborers. And they could change them, They could change their shape. That helped, that's how they were able to build all these things. They were able to like morph into different shapes to help them construct stuff. And then mm-hmm what happened is that as they were building more and more complex things, the older things gave the Shoggoths intelligence and they sort of taught them how to do stuff. And that was what undid them because you had the, the intelligence, but it was shackled to, well, not shackled to you had the intelligence, but it was, it was embodied in this completely irrational thing that like, wasn't, uh, wasn't scientifically minded, that wasn't, that basically wasn't sort of like what the main character would consider to be uh, admirable like it was like this power had been given to something that was sort of like dumb and violent
0: i feel like some people view our podcast this way yeah. like you're a great one and i'm a shaga
1: well i like shaga <laughs> An- another uh, another thing that they talk about amounts of madness is that they they bring up the concept of what he calls like unguided evolution and unchecked evolution, which is something that, that some um, Bergenworth talk about the way that there's that note. That's yeah. like
0: evolution, without, yeah, evolution courage. without
1: courage. And I think that the Japanese is more like um, uh, sort of a, like a deviant evolution.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: the idea, yeah. Being that like, that what's, what's, created life and what is sort of destroying it is the idea that evolution is happening, but there's nothing guiding it. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, very bergen
0: So, finally, after four years after the game comes out, this note makes sense. Yeah. Good job, Richie.
1: Okay, so, uh, we'll do Cadet now, because... Richie, yeah. why
0: did you ignore my good job to you? Uh, like, Absorb it
1: because you've you've taught me not to not to take praise at all.
0: <laughs> Look, this is congratulatory clapping.
1: Okay, thank you. I'm not sure I trust you though. <laughs> it's like congratulatory clapping. It's like, why didn't you fucking tell us at the time?
2: <laughs> uh,
1: congratulatory clapping. Now maybe that you solved the problem, you can go get a girlfriend or something like that. <laughs> The thing is like i've I've internalized your bullying to such a degree that <laughs> you don't even need to say it, I just think it, you just think it? yeah,
0: well, no, you okay, I'll be honest, it's not that you're thinking it, it's that like a lot of the times I'm thinking it and yeah. I don't say it, yeah. so you're just psychically perceiving my thoughts,
1: yeah, that's one way of looking at it <laughs> so. Uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, I guess. We'll do that and then call it a Yeah. Okay. So.
0: What's a Kadath?
1: Kadath is a place.
0: A imaginary place.
3: Well, it's an unknown place.
0: Why is it called Unknown Kadath?
1: Because it takes him a long time to get there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is is quite long. It's like a novella. The one, the um, Innsmouth. Mountains of Madness and Call of Cthulhu are are all short stories. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is more like a novella, and there's a series of kind of linked stories uh, connected to this, which are called The Dream Cycle, and they feature a character called Randolph Carter.
0: Yeah, it was a very long audiobook.
1: Yeah. So how far did you get in it?
0: I don't remember. I think I listened to all of it. Yeah. But it's all of the books kind of merged into this one big book because they all seem kind of similar. Yeah. And you know?
1: Yeah. Well, Lovecraft wrote a lot. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like, he was a, he was a jobbing like horror writer. Not everything he wrote was the stuff he is best known for. He did just write straight up horror, horror stories. He actually wrote some like comedic horror stories. Oh, like, um, we
0: should
3: cover those. Well,
1: Her- Herbert West reanimator. Like, he considered that to be basically like a black comedy.
3: Huh. Yeah. Huh.
1: So Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is, I think this is probably the most directly influential on Bloodborne. Mm-hmm. And also on like, Miyazaki in general, because I mean we'll get to this later on. But um I I guess one thing to talk about would be that Lovecraft was was pretty influential on, like, D&D culture. Mm -hmm. And Miyazaki, he seems to have, like, one foot in... Like, he talks about the fighting fantasy books, and he he clearly, like... The the insight mechanic in Bloodborne is taken pretty much directly from the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. So I'm pretty sure, like, he has some sort of, like... He at least has, like, a foot or a toe in that culture.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about this in the uh, Demon Souls podcasts.
1: Yeah, it straight up has mind flayers in it, which are just directly from Dungeons and yeah, 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 yeah. So, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is uh, about a. It's it's odd because it's like it's a story, but it's more like a travelogue just through all these strange places that he's invented. So the story is that there's a guy called Randolph Carter, and he he keeps having a dream where he sees this very beautiful city. Um, he talks about like this, like golden sort of paradise with these like fountains that are like polished silver. And there's like beautiful, like rainbows and all these like, uh, blossoms and statues and gardens everywhere. Mm-hmm. And he keeps dreaming about it, but what happens is he's there for a little bit. He can't see it properly. He can't explore it properly. And then he wakes up again. Mm-hmm. So he, goes on a quest in the dream. He um, he dreams himself to the dreamlands, in the same way that we do in Bloodborne. He, like, visits this other world in his dreams. And he basically goes on a a quest to find out if there's a way for him to just go to this city that he's dreaming about. Because he knows it exists somewhere, but he can't find the way. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's, like, a very old man, and this place he, he talks about, like, it reminds him of his youth, and he sort of, he's, like, he wants to sort of move on and just live in this, like, it's like a, like a heaven for him. so sort of just wants to go to heaven <laughs> at the end of his life. Yeah. Um, the most overt thing here is that Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath very, very explicitly calls things the dream and the waking world, just like Bloodborne does. Mm. Yeah. And it also talks about how in the dreamlands, things are surrounded by clouds, which is exactly how the hunter's dream and the, the nightmare areas of Bloodborne are all floating in the sea of clouds. Yeah. And he talks about how the reason he goes on this quest is he's like, Well, in the dream, there are these gods, and I can make contracts with them and I can contact them. (laughs) Which, again, Bloodborne very explicitly does. The whole idea is that, like, you can go into the dreamlands and meet a great one, and then you can actually make, like, an agreement with it. It's not something that can't be understood. (laughs) And uh, while he is there, he. There's a, a number of um, just sort of strange creatures in the dreamlands. Like I said, it's, it's like a travelogue. So he'll just sort of like, he travels on a boat. There's like these islands of clouds in the dream, and he gets on a boat, and he just goes basically from island to island. And he meets a lot of monsters there. One of them is the Gugs, who are a very... They're they explicitly referenced in Bloodborne. Gugs yeah. are these uh, enormous, sort of like hairy monsters that they have what makes them distinct is that their mouth is vertical, it opens like vertically when you meet the silver beasts and bloodborne, they have the same mouth uh, this, it's it's not entirely that because that when you meet a silver beast, you realize it's not that its mouth is vertical, it's that its head is is twisted to one side,
2: <laughs>
1: but he's very clearly referencing gugs when you run into silver yeah. beasts, yeah um yeah,
0: yeah, they literally look like that if you Google them,
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he talks about how there's a place in the Dreamlands called Dylath Lane, and he explicitly says it looks like Giant's Causeway. Giant's Causeway is a place that's full of basalt columns, and it looks exactly like the Nightmare Frontier. The way that there's the, the hexagonal basalt columns coming out of the ground. So I'm pretty sure the the design of the Nightmare Frontier with the basalt columns is derived from that line because he's explicitly like I went to the Dreamlands and I found a place that looked like Giant's Causeway.
2: Huh. Yeah.
3: And uh, now another
1: like really really overt connection here is that when he's in the Dreamlands, he talks about how the there are these things called the great ones in the dreamlands, and they sometimes have children with humans mm-hmm. yeah. and that uh, there are pe- so there are people in the the dreamlands who very explicitly have the blood of the great ones in them, and that there are sometimes people who will kidnap the children that the great ones have with humans and use them as- hold them hostage and try to get stuff. So that's that's pretty much the exact plot of Bloodborne.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty much, yeah.
1: Yeah. So this is what I mean about, like, Kadath is, this is the most directly influential. A lot of people went for Cthulhu, just because Cthulhu kind of looks like a Prietus. but yeah. This, yeah.
0: And I guess Cthulhu is the most popular one of his.
1: Yeah, his work taken together is referred to as the Cthulhu Mythos. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which has led some people to think Cthulhu is, like, the most important thing. He's not really. He's, like, he's sort of like a, I don't know, like a B-tier monster that, like, just happens to live on Earth. But because the story's kind of, like, revolved around that, it became called the Cthulhu Mythos. Mm Mm-hmm. But Cthulhu himself is, like, not that powerful or important. He's just a dude.
3: <laughs>
1: so another character that we meet in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is King Kuranes, who I think is at least partially the inspiration behind Gurman. Oh, yeah. Because it talks about how Kuranes is this very old man who has dreamed himself to the dreamlands. And he's had this, like, pretty shitty life. But he had a very, he romanticizes his childhood. So what he does is when he's in the dreamlands, because he's been there so long, he can affect what is there. He can, he can sort of like loose his dream when he's there. And he dreams up a replica of the place he used to live when he was a child. And he starts dreaming up like, uh, like the village that was nearby and everything to sort of endlessly live on in nostalgia.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Which is very similar to the way that, like, German is in a replica of the old workshop, and it's, like, it's, like, a nice version. There's, like, the fire's going, everything's very well kept, and he's got his doll of Maria to keep company. Whereas <laughs> if you go there in the real world, it's all just been burned down, and it's, like, decrepit and covered in spiders and everything. Yeah. So. That seems to have been the influence, I guess, that, like, German, like, Kurnas, he's, like, a he's, like, this old guy, and he's sort of at the end. Like, this, Carter is the same too, where it's, like, I'm sort of at the I just sort of want to live somewhere that, like, you know, the world is shitty, so I'm going to escape into a dream that's sort of nostalgic for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, when you said endlessly live on in nostalgia, it made me think of Dresne.
1: Yeah. I was thinking of Ready Player One. Ready Player One, which if you described it to me I'd think was a horror film, <laughs> but is apparently family adventure. <laughs> so uh that's kinda it for the Bloodborne influence. But there's two things in Kadath that have ended up in other Miyazaki games, which is why I'm saying like there's probably uh he probably spent a lot of time looking at role playing stuff. Um the first thing is there's a species called the Nightgaunts, who are basically these, like, they're basically the Batwing demons from Dark Souls, but they don't have a face. And if you know your Dark Souls, like, concept art that was, like, sort of used to promote it, but they're not in the game. One of the designs they almost went with was, like, a, a gargoyle woman. It was, like, a female uh, body kind of gargoyle thing that didn't have a face. And it looks pretty much like a Nightgaunt is described. If you were trying to make, like, a night wife waifu, you would end up with this thing. <laughs> the other thing he talks about is uh, the the old monk in Demon's Souls is a reference to him. People call him, like, the King in Yellow, and the King in Yellow is a, a separate thing, but if you look at Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, it talks about how, like, there is a priest in this land that, he wears a yellow silk mask over his face and he lives in a stone monastery. Which is very similar to the old monk in Demon Souls. idea It's like this old priest in a monastery and he's covered in yellow silk.
3: Hmm. Hmm. And It's important to note
1: that like, like D&D tangent, but Mind Flayers from Dungeons and Dragons, I've talked about like they're derived from Lovecraft but they're not um they were like developed independently they just happened to sort of hit on the same set of of ideas because it's like a guy with a squid for a head because <laughs> they look a lot like Cthulhu, but if you if you know your D&D history it was completely different to that it was the the design of the mind flayer was it came from uh it was like a skull someone found that had a tree root growing inside it so it was this skull but it had these roots coming out of the of the mouth. And they sort of designed the monster based on that. It became like a squid-headed person. So I guess we'll move on to Call of Cthulhu now.
3: Yay! Call of Cthulhu! Oh, no, only an
1: hour? Okay. It's, it's actually quite going quite well.
0: Yeah, because I'm tired and yeah. not talking, and so I can't give you crap and take you into tangents.
1: You did read Call of Cthulhu, though?
0: Yeah, I didn't read it; I listened to it.
1: Okay.
3: So, no, listen to all of them. Yeah. Okay. So, do you want to talk about Call of Cthulhu? Mm.
0: Okay. What do you want me to say about <laughs> it? We've been, we've been through this. Okay. You're better at summarizing things. Okay. I'm better at clapping and giving you crap. Okay.
1: So the plot of Call of Cthulhu is, uh, Plot of Call of Cthulhu is that a guy's, it's his uncle, I think, dies. His uncle is a professor and he leaves behind these sort of strange, um, things that he was studying. And the protagonist begins researching, like, well, what did this mean? What was happening? And he gradually uncovers that this is all traceable back to a cult who worships something called Cthulhu. And then the more he looks into it, he discovers that actually the Cthulhu is a, it's an alien entity that dwells in a city called R'lyeh, that is somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. And there is, uh, at one point, some sailors actually found R'lyeh. They went there and they somehow woke up Cthulhu. And Cthulhu is actually there, and Cthulhu, like, destroyed, like, he he ate. um... Cthulhu woke up, ate a few of them, and then they desperately, like, they ram Cthulhu with a boat. Yeah. And then that sends Cthulhu back to sleep.
0: Or does it?
1: Well, this is the thing, because, like, we were talking about, like, where the horror comes from. Cthulhu is not supposed to be scary because Cthulhu is Godzilla. Cthulhu is just meant to be like, it's horrifying that this thing exists at all because it sort of turns our understanding of the world upside down. So, like, what we just described with Cthulhu being woken up and and eating sailors and them having to ram him with the boat to send him back to sleep again, that's already happened before the story starts. It's like a historical event. The horror is Mm -hmm. just that that it happened at all.
0: Yeah, it's very... uh... Miyazaki lore.
1: It is actually, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. A lot of the books seem to be very Miyazaki lore.
1: Yeah, in the sense that it's it's like uh, like an investigator. Like the, yeah. the the main character will be like a, a journalist or a scientist or an antiquarian or a historian who sort of stumbles upon something. They begin researching, and then they uncover the truth that's underpinning it, and that's kind of the end. That sort of like the reality breaks down. Yeah. yeah so in call of cthulhu cthulhu himself like i'm assuming most people listening to this know what Cthulhu looks like but um as we were saying with mountains of madness like lovecraft does provide a very very in-depth description of what cthulhu looks like so everyone sort of knows at this point what cthulhu is uh nerds wear cthulhu stuff everywhere there's like cthulhu <laughs> all over the internet you can buy like a plush cthulhu yeah. you can There's, like, like an indie RPG where you can play as, like, a cutesy Cthulhu who saves the world. It's all these little riffs on Cthulhu. Yeah,
0: Yeah. you can even get a knit Cthulhu scarf. I kind of want one. It's really cute. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, everyone loves Cthulhu, which would no doubt utterly horrify Lovecraft, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, like, the way Cthulhu was described is very similar to Ibriatus. In that, like, ibrietus is this sort of vaguely humanoid sort of, like, gooey thing with these sort of kind of... Like, it has wings, but it can't really fly. And it's got this huge, like, its its head is covered in these sort of polyps. Um, Cthulhu obviously has, like, very long tentacles. ibrietus has polyps, but other than that, it's like... Again, it's like I- Ibriatus is sort of like if you were to design Cthulhu but then leaning more into Bloodborne having these like maternal themes to it. If you tried to make like a sort of maternal version of Cthulhu. So Ibriatus is kind of like she sort of has breasts and she's she's like Yeah. Uh Ibriatus was pretty heavily waifu when she came out. Yeah. <laughs> Because she does have like a, she has like a noticeably female form to her. Yeah. Yeah. It's also an influence on the way that amygdala looks, the way that amygdala has the the sort of head of these like undulating tentacles that comes down.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. Yeah. And that's notable because, like, at different points in development, amygdala and its were meant to be the big reveal. So the idea of like the big reveal of the game being something that looks a lot like Cthulhu sort of fits with this. That you
3: you would get to the end and you would find this thing. Yeah. Um
1: one of the things that happens when the protagonist is researching into the Cthulhu sort of story is that he talks about how like there was an outbreak of madness. And during that outbreak of madness, uh, sculptors and artists created these sort of impressions of something that looks a bit like Cthulhu. Like, they would catch it. So that's like, again, if you go into Bloodborne, it's just full of all these statues that look a bit like either Ibriasis or Amygdala. The idea being that, like, people didn't actually see these things, but they were sort of, like, sensing their existence. So you see like there it's all over Upper Cathedral Ward, there's these statues, it's like it kind of looks like um like there are statues everywhere that have like one or two of the design elements of Ibriatus or Amygdala, but the rest doesn't match. So you see like like almost like a Sphinx body with an amygdala head, or you'll see uh like a um like a sort of hunched over like blob shape that looks a bit like Ibriatus. You see, like, uh, Ibriatus shaped things with human heads. And I think the idea that's what they're getting at is that people's got a hint that these things exist. And they didn't quite know what to make of it. And they just sort of, like, in this weird fugue state, sculpted these things.
0: If you look at Bloodborne this way, where you kind of think that these things permeate the human yeah, mind, yeah. The statues make a lot more sense.
1: Yeah. And again, like, um, going back to the idea that this is not human history. This is, like, older than that. They find a Cthulhu statue and they're like, um, I wrote down the script, it's like, this is com- totally separate and apart. Its very material was a mystery. It is nothing familiar to geology or mineralogy. Like, you just, we don't know what this is. Um, when the there's, like, a Cthulhu sort of chant these people do that's very guttural, it's like um ayah ayah kthuluftagen. And he's very specific, like, this isn't a language. Like I don't understand any of this. He says it's like um, he describes it as uninscribable gibberish. Mm-hmm. But, like this is not a recognizable language at all. They are it's just these strange noises.
0: Are you sure that was the language? Because in my version it went
1: Well maybe that's Maybe you're, maybe you're the great one and I'm the Shoggoth. <laughs> that is what's happened. Cause you've, you've given me this podcast platform that I didn't ask for and now I'm destroying it.
0: <gasps> oh my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So actually. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the Shoggoths keep imitating people's voices and that's what you keep making me do with your, your fanfic you've written. <laughs>
0: Oh, man, so you heard it here first, yeah. folks, because the general impression is that you're the great one.
1: Yeah, no, I'm the Shogar. Yeah, I'm a nightmare column of iridescent blackness.
0: <laughs> we turned this podcast lore on its head.
1: <laughs> and again, like, when when they get to Rillier, um, Rilier is described similarly to the Chalice Dungeons in that it is, like, a tomb where these the Great Ones are sleeping. And like Cthulhu was sleeping, and they make a point about like these things are technically dead, but they're still dreaming, which fits with the the way the Charles Dungeons are described, where like the great ones are down there, and they're like they're in a tomb, but they're still they're still technically like something about them is conscious. They're still sort of alive, but they're also dead. And there's a famous line from it that's like that is not dead which can eternal lie. So the idea is like yeah, they're sort of not dead like, they're, tech, they're in a tomb, but their consciousness sort of persists, which is very similar to the Great Ones. But, like Mountains of Madness, they make a point about, like, even, like, I can describe this thing as a tomb with tunnels, etc. It's absolutely nothing to do with human history. They say, like, this is, uh, I've written it down, it's horribly remote and distinct from mankind. And it says, like, this is something of which our world and our conceptions are utterly apart. So it's like, it's just nothing. Like, this is um, there's a, a quote that describes Cthulhu as like uh, it's not. This is not from the book. This is from a review of it, where it's like Cthulhu is a monster, but it's a monster in the sense that it's like like if you look at, at monsters, they will they will have some connection to humanity, like a like a werewolf or a vampire or something. It's like Cthulhu is that, but it is more like a giant fossil. It is just like this ancient thing that has nothing to do with you that predates you that's coming back which is very distinct from from
3: traditional sort of gothic monsters so like as a, i
1: guess like to sort of wrap it up like as um as i was saying like if you you can get any individual kind of story from bloodborne like canehurst is a story about like vampires and you go there into haunted vampire castle you have like the old Yarnum, which is like this outbreak of a plague that turns people into animals that start, like, ripping each other apart. You've got, like, Bergenworth, some, some people go into a tomb where they shouldn't go, and there's, like, a curse. And then you've got, like, a fishing hamlet. The uh, scientists and explorers go somewhere where they weren't supposed to go, and they anger the gods and everything. Um, And, like, those stories, I think none of those need need the cosmic horror aspect that Lovecraft brings to it. They are completely... And like Hemwick, Hemwick, it's like it's a weird place full of witches they do ritual libel. But what Bloodborne does is
3: it uses Lovecraft's framework to come up with a way of unifying all of these things.
1: So it's like it's a Lovecraftian universe in which gothic things happen. Here's my take on Bloodborne.
3: Yay. Yay. Bravo, Richie. Thank you.
0: You did an excellent job. I think uh, the past few podcasts that are going to be released, but they have been recorded, mm-hmm. are going to be very on point because I am super tired these past few weeks and extremely allergic to Corvo. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I can't clap and scream as much, you know?
1: I'm sure you'll you'll find the strength.
0: Okay, maybe maybe for the next podcast.
1: Well, you did it. You did it last night when I did I. I pronounced the name Uspensky incorrectly.
0: Oh, you're right. I said so Uspensky,
1: not and then yeah. Wait, like, what did you say? I was saying Uspensky, and you were like, "It's Uspensky," but in such a way that like I had completely pronounced it like it was I pronounced it like Fred or something. <laughs>
0: No, oh, but you're still mispronouncing it because it's something in between the
1: two. Yeah, it's a Russian name.
0: Yeah, it's not it's not us-pien-ski". you have to remove the you know, sound and just go us-pien-ski". Us-pien-ski. yeah, yeah. Okay. like it's normal because like English speaker often add a like y sound where there is none because yeah. I think that combination of letters
1: yeah, like,
0: that we, does not exist in the English language. Yeah. So, but You're actually pretty good when I ask you to pronounce Russian words. Are we going
1: to have, like, an episode that's you teaching me how to pronounce Russian words? We are now. There used to be a YouTube channel called Miss Hannah Minx, where she would teach you one Japanese word a day. And I think we need to do that, but with Russian.
0: Oh my god, yeah! I could get a dictionary and everything and just go word by word.
3: That might take a while. I think we should stick to, like, important words.
0: No, 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 no. We're going to do this properly. Okay. How long is that going to take? How many words are there in the Russian well, language?
1: Well, look, if if we don't have a lot to say about Sekiro, we're going to need something.
0: <laughs> okay. The largest Russian dictionaries have 130,000 to 150,000 words. Okay. How many days is that? I mean, how many years is that? So, Let's see, divide by 364. That's 357 years. Well, better get started. Okay. Maybe we should do a page a day.
1: Do you want to do one that's like that's like you can just read out a Russian dictionary? And then people can splice the audio together to make it look like you're sending someone a message.
0: (laughs) Oh my God.
1: Yeah. You should like make, make your own sin insults, Richard thing where it's just, you (laughs) can read out a bunch of insults and then Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you can give people the audio files and they can put that back together.
0: Yeah. Remember sound were really popular at some point and you'd have like a Bioshock soundboard and like a Fallout soundboard. I think soundboard you're forgetting the best and, yeah. one. Which is which is that?
1: It was the kindergarten cop one.
0: Oh my god, yes! yes. And then people would call others and yeah. like prank them with the soundboard. Who's your daddy and what does he do? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> that is a great idea.
1: That is a, that is a deep cut from uh, the early <laughs> days of YouTube pranks.
0: <laughs> yeah. I remember those days.
3: Do you want to start doing YouTube nostalgia? Another podcast? Why not?
1: I think it's more like the same podcast, you just give the episodes different categories.
0: (laughs) No, no, I actually really like this one because. I think
1: kids today need to know about the the angry video game reviewer trend of port 7.
0: Yeah, does YouTube nostalgia exist already? Right? I feel like it's something that should exist. Let me go on YouTube and YouTube, YouTube nostalgia. I was
1: talking about the game dude with someone earlier. I'll have you know that he was rude and crude with attitude. <laughs> he is the game dude. He is so rude. He is a gamer with a bad attitude.
0: Richie. Yeah. So thanks. I see various videos that are nostalgic or talk about nostalgia but not an actual podcast that encapsulates everything. Yeah. So uh I think we're onto something.
1: We need to get it we need to be ahead of the curve and make the like the stranger things equivalent that it's just the early 2000s. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. All right. To the authority. What episode was that? Uh, I will tell you. Let me go to my notepad.
0: Mm. Mm. Okay. This was episode
2: 46.
1: That was episode 46 of The Snack Covenant, a podcast about video games. That, that This episode was about... <laughs> a horror writer from 1940.
0: (laughs) It was an avid gamer.
1: Yeah, he was a well-known gamer.
3: (laughs) Hmm. He would have been a great gamer. I can imagine him being banned from Twitch.
1: (laughs) This was an episode about popular Twitch streamer H.P. Lovecraft.
0: Because people won't listen to the end. So I guess this is the part where I can confess, the thing I confessed to you a few days ago. Go on. So I had no idea who H.P. Lovecraft was Yeah. until after um, looking at Bloodborne lore.
1: That's okay. Well, maybe maybe they'll yeah. throw a curveball in there and, like, Sekiro will have a bunch of references to Tolstoy.
2: Oh! Ah.
0: And I'll be like, I know
1: this.
0: (laughs) I understand it.
1: There you go.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. I'm pretty sure I didn't even know who Cthulhu was. So the entire time I'm playing Bloodborne, I'm like, wow, this is all new and amazing. How did they come up with these creatures? (laughs) This is great.
1: Yeah, for me, like, I remember getting to the Nightmare Frontier for the first time and realizing what happened. Uh Uh-huh. As soon as I got there and I saw the, like, the basalt columns and then the silver beast turned around and it had the vertical mouth I'm like oh it's that okay and I like messaged a bunch of people to be like Bloodborne Lovecraft, you gotta play it now
0: <laughs>
1: and they're like I don't have a PS4 and I'm like oh okay so i watch a video
0: <laughs> so we're like the complete opposites in our Bloodborne experience
1: you think that's why we get on well
0: I think so yeah, yeah. I think this is why this thing works
1: yeah yeah. It's like that, that, um, when I was, like, working on films, there was this one person I got on really well with because we had nothing to common. <laughs> so there was absolutely nothing to argue about.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: she was the complete opposite of me in every possible way. And if you saw us together, it sort of looked like I was a creepy tramp stalking her. But. <laughs> Because she was, she was like really, she was like really into like expensive clothes and stuff, and I looked like a bin. And <laughs> but it worked really well because it was like, okay, I'll just do my things and you do your things. And if either of us need the other one's help, just tell me. But otherwise, we won't like get in each other's faces. We'll just like get everything done on time, and it worked perfectly whereas the oh, people who, no but the thing is the people who are like oh we're on the same page we like the same stuff I also like this like wow this is gonna be great we ended up fighting constantly because it was like no we should do it differently and they'd actually have really strong really? opinions about it yeah. yeah
0: yeah yeah that's true yeah and the things surprisingly now the things we have strong opinions about we kind of on the same page
1: yeah like those. yeah
0: yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Mm.
0: Mm. Mm. Oh, another thing. Go on. <laughs> A couple of days ago, Richie told me what HP stood for. <laughs>
2: mm.
0: I didn't. You know, when you hear HP Lovecraft yeah. for so many. Yeah. You know, when you hear it so many times, you don't think to be like. I thought his name was actually HP. <laughs> Like, I don't know, it just it never occurred to me to look it up. And then when you told me his name, I was like, oh, oh, HP stands for something, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Number one lore hunter yeah. right here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Bloodborne's HP stat is a reference to HP Lovecraft.
0: <laughs> Do you want to have a podcast about how the HP stat referencing
1: Lovecraft. okay alright about Patreon tier will that be <laughs> I
0: think this is beyond patrons. yeah alright I guess I guess that's it okay I guess that was the outro okay good yeah
1: can I, can I stop recording now
0: Okay, you can press stuff now. Yeah, me too.